because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. Now, for the last X number of months, you've been hearing best of Power Hours if you've been listening to the show. But I mentioned in the last couple intros that I was planning on bringing back new episodes, and this is the first new episode. So I am excited to do it. We are moving more back to the original format of the show, where I bring in guests from the outside and interview them. And it's going to be a combination of that and then also me just doing more segments because I have a lot of things to say that I haven't shared in a while and there's a lot of new stuff going on. So sometimes it'll be me primarily. Sometimes I'll bring in someone from the CIP team like Don Watkins or Stefan Henna. And often I will bring in an external guest. We already have for the end of this month lined up Robert Bryce, who has a new book, A Question of Power. So he is actually the first ever Power Hour guest. So it'll be exciting to have him on again and feel free to request any new guests. So you can always email me, as I'll mention at the end, at alex at alexepstein.com. So I'm planning on doing these weekly. I think that'll work. Definitely at least bi-weekly, assuming all of you like it still. So keep giving us uh, feedback. And I'm not sure it'll always be an hour, even though it's called Power Hour. So hopefully you can forgive that. Sometimes more, sometimes considerably less. Okay. That is that is the intro. And today I'm going to cover two big topics. And they're both related to the fossil fuel industry, uh, specifically the oil and gas industry. But I think they're of general interest as well. So the, the two topics are, the first one is three thoughts on the oil price crash. If you haven't heard of that, then you will definitely hear about it now. And then the other segment, which will probably be longer, is called the ESG chess game. The ESG chess game. So both of those will be clear. And midway through the first segment, I'll be joined by my colleague Don Watkins to talk uh, about a certain aspect of the oil price crash. And then he'll be on the whole segment for ESG because he and I have been researching this uh, and writing about it together. So I'll definitely want his insight on that. Okay, let's begin. The first topic I want to cover today is the recent oil price crash, and I want to share three thoughts about it. So it is currently, this could, this will definitely change in the future in some way, but it's, I'm currently recording this at 9.55 a.m. Pacific time on Wednesday, March 11th, 2020. And I haven't read the news in depth even this morning, but here's, I can't imagine anything is that, uh, is that different? When Don comes on, maybe he'll inform me. Otherwise, if he knows. But I just want to bring you up to date on what's happened. Some of you in the industry will know this very well, but I think it's important to just get the essentials of what is going on with what I'm calling the oil price crash. So point one, the price of oil, this is background, is determined by supply and demand, which means the higher demand is relative to supply, the higher prices are, and the lower demand is relative to supply the lower prices are. So when more people are willing to pay more for oil, then uh, the price goes up, assuming supply stays the same. And if, you know, fewer people are willing to pay less, or, you know, in effect, people are willing to pay less, then the price goes down. And so in, in, in recent years, what's happened is that demand has increased 
contrary to the predictions of many people who said it would decrease, but supply has increased far more. And the leading cause has been U.S. shale oil, which has led to falling prices. So again, point one is price of oil is determined by supply and demand. Point two is that supply has outstripped demand largely thanks to U.S. shale oil. And then point three is that these falling prices that come from supply outstripping demand have put a strain on U.S. shale producers who expected more demand and therefore higher prices. And then point four, in recent months and weeks, demand has gotten even lower because of, you know, you can call it COVID-19, a.k.a. the coronavirus, although there are many coronaviruses, uh, which has lessened all economic activity, especially travel, which is very oil affects oil a lot because oil is the fuel of mobility. And then especially in China, which is the world's leading user of energy. So this is, we can think of point four as there's a demand, a coronavirus-related demand shock. And then the point five is in the last several days, government oil companies in Russia and Saudi Arabia, so these are called national oil companies or government oil companies, they they control the flow of oil. So it's not at all uh, free property owner, you know, property owners under freedom, which exists in the U.S. and to some extent in other parts of the world. So in the last several days, government oil companies in Russia and Saudi Arabia, which many had expected them to keep their supply the same or even cut it, they decided to dramatically increase supply. And there's a whole bunch of interesting things there, but the the bottom line for our purposes is that they decided to dramatically increase supply. So that's a supply shock. So you can think of it as we've got a supply, uh, a demand shock, demand going down, uh, supply shock, supply going up. And so this is point six, a low demand shock plus a high supply shock equals plummeting prices as well as expected prices. And then point seven is plummeting prices and expected prices means far greater strain on already strained U.S. shale oil producers. And then point eight is we're now hearing predictions of widespread bankruptcy and layoffs. So I have three thoughts I want to share about this, and they're mostly for industry, because although I think they're of broader interest and we have a lot of, you know, um, I've interacted a lot with people in the oil and gas industry and I have a lot of positive feelings toward that industry. So I have three thoughts that I hope will be helpful. But first, I wanted uh, to bring on Don and he, he had a he raised a good question about how should we think of this as consumers. So first of all, hey, Don, welcome to Power Hour. Good to be back. Good. Yeah, it's good. Good to be recording again. So what was your tell us about the question you raised and then your thoughts in terms of how this affects uh, consumers and how we should think about it as consumers? Yeah, I think that often as consumers, you just kind of hear the bottom line of, all right, prices are down. That's good news. But I mean, if you think from a long range perspective, the, the what you want are enduring low prices that still allow you to get good and ever better products or services. And the way that that actually happens, whether it's been from things like computers or cell phones or food, has always been through industry innovation, where they come up with better processes to create all the values that we consume and are able to do it at lower, lower costs. So they can charge us less and yet still make the profits they need to continue and to expand productive activities. But what, as you pointed out, that's not at all what's happening here. What's happening here is two pieces of bad news, right? So there's 
one element of it is economic stagnation. And there you could at least say, well, you know, at least we're not paying more for energy at the same time that people are going to be struggling. Some of them are losing jobs. Some businesses are going to see their revenue go down. Um, but then you get to the economic manipulation that is involved from Russia and Saudi Arabia. And there you have to look at like the long-term effects is going to be very destructive on American energy producers. And so the the fact that it's temporary and yet is going to cause long-term damage should be something that is really troubling to us because, you know, we're kind of taught to resent whenever we hear about the energy industry's profits. And what you actually want as a consumer so that you can flourish is you want the energy industry and you want every industry that's valuable to be enormously profitable because they're creating something of so much value. And the way that you get that in a way that's uh, not just extracting money from you, but is actually representing the value um, conveyed to you is through freedom. That is through free companies, privately owned, making economic decisions in the marketplace versus having what we're really seeing right now is foreign policy conducted through energy by these government owned energy, if you want to call them companies. But, uh, and that I think like, there's no upside to that for us at all. I think there's a very big downside. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for sharing that. And maybe in a future episode, I'll invite on a guest to give more insight into the international cartels, which are currently called OPEC Plus. So it involves OPEC, which often involves not not only but many of the Middle Eastern countries, particularly Saudi Arabia, the leading one, and then OPEC Plus. It also includes Russia. So that 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 situation has a lot of complexity to it, and is probably worth breaking down. But I definitely appreciate Don's point about what we want is low cost, reliable energy produced profitably, because that's the only it's only really low cost if it's produced profitably. If it's low cost, but that doesn't uh, but but people are losing money, then it can't stay low cost uh, for long. And so it's just like if you, you know, the government subsidized energy, that wouldn't really help much because you would just be that that can't endure and it's 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 you're not it's not actually low cost because you're paying you end up paying more for it just in a more covert kind of way. All right, so here are my thoughts for the industry. And so the, the first thought, and I hope this doesn't come across as sappy, but I, I'm I am really thinking about the you know really tens of thousands of you that I've met over the years, and it's. It's such a rough situation because it's, you know, the coronavirus discussion is very scary. It'll be really interesting to see how it actually evolves. I'm pretty confident that there is way too much panic, but, uh, you know, it doesn't mean people shouldn't take precautions. But, I mean, that itself is an issue. And then beyond that, the economy in general, you're seeing, you know, decline in economic activity when people are not gathering together gathering together when they're not traveling and when goods often aren't traveling, that's just slowing down everything. And so that 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 jeopardizes everyone's future to some degree. And then for your industry to be so challenged, uh, it's it's particularly scary. So it's just uh, I'm I'm thinking of the many of you that I've I've met. And then 
I've, the two other thoughts may be more practically useful. And these I'm not hearing. I mean, I'm not hearing much sympathy in general for people in the oil and gas industry, but but certainly not the following. So the second thought is that it's still true that oil use is essential to human flourishing in the coming decades and therefore it'll likely expand. So it's still true that oil use, and I would say expanded oil use, is essential to human flourishing. And this is important because part of what's contributing to the low prices, particularly the the expectation of low future prices and therefore the crash of the stocks, is the idea that oil use will not be essential for very long. And this often goes, I often characterize this as the transition narrative or or the extinction narrative. And the basic idea is that humanity, that humanity should and likely will uh, rapidly reduce fossil fuel use, really rapidly eliminate fossil fuel use and replace it with renewable energy, above all, solar and wind. And so this is the, the transition narrative or the extinction narrative. And this narrative... I talk about in the moral case for fossil fuels, and I've talked about other places, this narrative, I believe, is is deeply false. I believe the true narrative is what we can call the expansion narrative, which is at least globally uh, oil and gas use and fossil fuel use more broadly. It should expand, and it likely will expand. And the, the fundamental reasons are, is like reason one is that low-cost reliable energy is essential to human flourishing because it gives us the ability to use machines to improve our lives. So that's kind of point one. And point two is that the world is still woefully under-energized or underpowered. You have three billion people, for example, as Robert Bryce points out, that use less electricity than an American refrigerator. You have billions of people who are still cooking their food and heating their homes with wood and animal dung. And it's something like for the average person to consume as much energy as the average American, you need four times more energy production. So there's there's energy is essential to human flourishing is point one. Point two is far more uh, of it is needed. And then point three is that is that uh, fossil fuels, and here I'll focus on oil and gas in particular, just because I'm focusing on that industry right now, but they will be by far the lowest cost source of energy for billions of people in the coming decades. There's no, nothing nothing close to being able to produce low-cost, reliable energy uh, for all the different uses of energy, including mobility, where oil is, is king. Uh, doing that on a scale of billions of people, there's just nothing even remotely close to that. The closest is nuclear, but that that requires massive policy changes in terms of being decriminalized. And you're talking about decades even to build it out cost-effectively for electricity, let alone uh, mobility. So there's just not the, is the fact, if you, and there's a lot of details here, and we could talk. We'll talk about the details, and we've talked about them before. But just in terms of the high-level fact that fossil fuels will be by far the lowest cost source of energy for billions of people in the decades to come. And then point four is that there are no side effects of fossil fuels that remotely justify uh, eliminating them that are radically restricting them. And the main one people talk about is CO2 and causing a climate catastrophe. And the point there is there's no climate catastrophe. You can say there's climate change and human beings are contributing to climate change. They have to be precise about what you mean. But in terms of climate catastrophe, which means the threat of mass suffering and death due to changes in climate, there's nothing uh, 
resembling that. That's a key distinction, I think, for everyone to realize that, that, that having an impact on climate or climate change, if you want to call it that, is not the same as climate catastrophe. And so if you get, okay, low-cost reliable energy is fundamental, uh, way more of it is needed, the fossil fuel industry is uniquely able to produce it, and the benefits of that far, far outweigh any plausible side effects, then you get to the expansion narrative. We should be using more fossil fuels, uh, not less. And it's also predictive because those facts that I'm mentioning, that's not just Alex's opinion. Th these are the facts that people around the world are acting on. Billions of people, despite huge cultural hostility and political opposition of fossil fuels, people are using more fossil fuels than ever. And if they were far freer, they would use far more. You know, China's a really good example. They're building lots and lots of new coal plants while people think, and they're in part using those coal plants to build solar panels or to manufacture solar panels, which are often uh, uneconomic and certainly uneconomic without coal to produce them. But people have the idea, oh, they're transitioning uh, off. So the, the higher level point here was that oil use is essential to human flourishing and will likely expand. And I gave you the four basic reasons why this expansion narrative is I think it's it's important for everyone to know this, but particularly for those of you in the industry, because it's a it's a positive fact that you are not always being told. And I find that even at companies, uh, people aren't familiar with all the relevant facts in terms of what's wrong with the transition narrative and what's true about the expansion narrative. And so people have an overly pessimistic view of future demand for oil. So the, the and I would just add that those of you who are in the leadership positions, it's very important to tell the true the true narrative to your employees. And then it's also very important to tell that narrative to investors. And we'll talk more about investors under the ESG subject we'll, we'll talk about soon uh, in, in the next segment. But there's this general phenomenon of investors souring on oil and gas. And part of it is there have been per, like big performance issues, which I'll, I'll talk more about that in a minute as well. But I've had even people from very well-performing companies that are very profitable saying, hey, investors have fallen out of love with us. Now, why have they fallen out of love? Well, if they believe the extinction narrative, then even your present success is really illusory because if you know your, your ultimate success whether you're a good investment depends on two things, how big your market is and then how good you are relative to the competition. And if your market is a, is a fast shrinking market that's going to go extinct, it's hard to be a successful, uh, it's hard to be a, a long-term successful company in a really shrinking market. So this is this point about the ex the expansion narrative about oil and gas. This is crucial to tell to employees and it's crucial to tell to investors and to really have all the facts uh, just locked in because investors often don't have these facts and this is this is really this this the failure to really change or control the narrative in terms of expansion versus extinction I mean this is materially connected to uh, stock prices so this is really something to think about even people can say oh, it's an emergency now but part of Part of how to deal with the emergency is to give investors the truth about the future of the oil market and not allow this false transition or extinction narrative. So my, my third thought 
And this relates to the expansion narrative that oil, that expanded oil use is essential to human flourishing in the coming decades and likely will expand. Is that the work you're doing that you have been doing is incredibly good? I think this is really important to emphasize for a couple of reasons. One is that there's going to be a lot of criticism of the industry and not just in the usual ways of destroying the planet versus I think the reality is actually, no, you're improving the planet. The planet's never been a better place to live, thanks largely to low-cost, uh, reliable energy. But people are going to be saying, of course, you're destroying the planet. But there's also the criticism of the industry in terms of saying, well, the industry has been wasteful. CEO have made mistakes. They've overproduced oil and gas. And surely some of that is true. There have been plenty of mistakes, and those are really important to analyze. But what's not a mistake is the product that you're involved with. It's not a mistake for us to be producing oil and gas, and it's not a mistake to engage in all the innovation that the industry has engaged in. And really what's happened is the industry's mistakes that have, to the extent they've been self-destructive, have still been enormously beneficial to the rest of us because they've given us you know, more low-cost, reliable energy that we've been able to use to improve their lives. So I hope that those of you in the industry are just th during this time just thinking about, okay, we're going to be you know, criticized a lot for what we've been doing and for whether we should do it in the future. And it's just really important to know, know what, what we've been doing, speaking for you, is empowering people. And you know, we've just basically given more and more human beings around the world the ability to improve their lives you know, using the, the miracle of machines. And you do not want to live in a manual labor world, which 3 billion people still live in. You want to live in a machine labor world where most of your work can be thinking and you can be far more productive because you can get machines to do most of your work for you. And that's really the empowered world that the industry has created. So those are my three thoughts. I hope they are helpful. The next topic I want to talk about is what I call the ESG chess game. And I'll bring in Don in a few minutes. He's still standing by, but I want to give you a little bit of background on this. And this is, this is again, an issue that industry is thinking about a lot, and it's sort of an industry issue, but it's, it's really an issue for everyone to understand. And I think that, that certain mistakes we believe people in industry are making will be harmful to uh, all of us. So here's here's the background. I'm using this term ESG, so I should talk about what it means. In the last several years, there's been a massive push toward what's called ESG investing, and it's often used synony synonymously with sustainability or sustainable investing. So ESG stands for environmental social governance. So environmental social governance. And you can think of those as these are considered the three aspects of sustainability. So they're they're looking at companies and saying, okay, how, you know, how sustainable are you in terms of your environmental impacts and then your social impacts and then your governance uh, practices. Now, I mentioned it's important to define ESG and sustainability for that matter. And one of the things that you notice is that they're not clearly defined or they're defined many different ways. And that's always a flag, I think, that we should be we should be concerned about something being put over on us. But I think the most people, I think the most legitimate sense of it, the way that most people think of it, even if they don't define it this way, is sustainability 
people think of as long-term value creation. So versus being trying to create value or get money in a way that's short-term, people think of sustainability as long-term value creation. And long-term value creation is a great concept. And one thing I advise companies on, and I'll advise anyone listening, is that's a good concept to use. And that's a better concept to use than sustainability. If, if I was creating a report and it was up to me, companies wouldn't be creating sustainability reports. They'd be creating like long-term value reports. I think that would be much, much better for a whole bunch of reasons that we'll get into. But, it, you know, the the value creation part of it is very important and almost never even discussed under uh, sustainability. It's usually just focused on, as I'm sure Don will elaborate on, it's it's focused on, okay, what are the, what are the negatives that you need to do less of, but not focusing on, okay, what's the value you're creating and how does that compare to the value that others are creating or not creating? So sustainability, you can think of the way it's thought of is, in the best sense, is long-term value creation. And then ESG, you can think of as these are the best practices for long-term value creation. So they'll say, okay, these are best practices for how to structure your board of directors. And these are the best practices for what people call diversity policy. And these are the best practices for, let's say, methane emissions. That's a certain type of emission associated with oil and natural gas. And so there are these best practices. And in practice, why companies care about this so much, besides insofar as it's a good idea, which we'll talk about to what extent that's true, if companies are not evaluated as sufficiently ESG compliant, at least two bad things can happen to them. So one is that certain investors won't invest in them. And so that's a very big concern, particularly if you're a public company, but even if you're a private company or a fund raising money. So if you're not viewed as ESG compliant or ESG friendly, certain people, certain investors won't invest in you. And then two is that shareholders may pass a resolution against the management of the company. So they may say, well, we disagree with management. And it can ultimately mean we want to fire the CEO. We want to fire people on the board. And understandably, CEOs and boards are not super uh, happy about that. And so, that, and for that reason and other reasons, they often give in to different kinds of, of demands. And so, what's happened is that so people are, these companies have this very strong incentive to comply with ESG, uh, different kinds of requests. And these, these come from, they come from different sources. Some are more kind of activists. Uh, some are, often it comes from the large, what are called passive investors, which are people like Vanguard and BlackRock. They have much of our 401k, and because of what I believe are problems in the law, actually, they're required to participate in all kinds of different shareholder votes. And in recent years, they've been advocates of ESG and said they'll vote against management if management goes against certain kinds of ESG practices or demands. And so, as you might expect, when there's this ESG, all this ESG pressure, there's this huge industry that has sprung up to help fossil fuel companies become more ESG compliant. And in the last several years, it's been really astounding, I think, to people everywhere, just that ESG three, four years ago, you barely heard of it at all. Now you're hearing about it at the CEO level, at the board level. And it's just the thing to do is to be more ESG compliant, to improve your ESG. It's just become this cause. And one interesting thing is that many executives have thought of it as a, as a good thing despite the sense that I'll talk about where much of the ESG movement is obviously hostile to the fossil fuel industry, but many executives have thought of it as good. And I think the reason is, is because some of the ESG, but I emphasize some of the best practices are reasonable 
And so they think that's like, okay, well, I can do this thing that's reasonable and then I can get points for it. I can get a good letter grade. I can, they'll often say, I can check the box. And then sometimes companies even think it it helps them because they can they can tell they can tell about these good best practices that they're doing that they might not have told about before. So this there are a lot of examples of this, but one example is companies will say to me, well, no, we we have good policies on methane emissions and we already had those, but we weren't telling our story very well. So now with ESG, we can check off that we have a better methane emissions policy, or we have we have a good corporate governance policy, and what the ESG people are asking us is pretty reasonable. Or sometimes they'll say, maybe ESG has some charitable component, and they'll say, oh, well, we're helping build a school in some country, and that's good, and so we get to tell our story. So it's interesting that ESG is viewed as, as an opportunity. And then even even with things that you might think a fossil fuel company should be concerned about, such as ESG demands that they lower their greenhouse gas emissions because greenhouse gas emissions are inherent in fossil fuel production and use, you're still hearing, I still hear from many people, oh, no, this is okay. Like, it's good for us to commit to this in one argument. You know, I hear this happens with refiners, certainly, as they'll say, well, we are, yeah, we've agreed to reduce our greenhouse gases, but that's okay. That just means we'll use less energy to produce the same amount of refined fuel. And that's, you know, that'll make us more efficient. And so that's good. So there's this just general view that, yeah, it's good. We want to follow the ESG guidelines. We want to agree to the ESG uh, demands. And it's going to be, it might even help us and it might even lead us toward better practices. And it's, it's reasonable. And so I my view is that this is not a strategic way of looking at it. So I want to share with you what I think is a more strategic way of of looking at it. And I, I believe that whenever one is presented with a new, a significant new change in conditions, whether it's in change in economic environment or physical environment or intellectual environment in terms of this big movement that's affecting uh a lot of the company's policies, one should really think about what is this movement's goal and then what are the steps it's telling us to take to get there. And so one way to think of it as ESG as a framework, it's a a new structure for thinking about your company and its long-term value creation. And so I'd I'd ask executives to think about two questions. Do you agree with the ESG definition of value creation? And do you agree with the best practices to get there? So do you agree with the definition of value creation? And do you agree with the best practices to get there? Or do you agree with all of them? And if you don't agree with some of them, what are they and how important that is? And so I want to start out with the best practices and then I'll go to what they mean by value creation. So one thing we've observed is that the best, some of the best practices are beneficial or benign, but others are clearly not beneficial for fossil fuel companies, but they're still endorsing them. They're still they're still being asked to do them under ESG. And I want to bring in Don because Don worked with me very closely on a, uh, we wrote a mini white paper that we've been sharing with certain people who read our newsletter. Uh, so far, we're only sharing it with people in industry who are dealing with ESG challenges. So if you're interested in seeing the current version, just email me Alex at alexepstein.com, subject white paper. Again, if, if you're actually dealing with these challenges, we'll at some point reduce a more, uh, 
uh, rather release a more public version. But I wanted to bring in Don. And Don, can you talk about cases where we, we call this the ESG dilemma, where things that companies are being asked to do in the name of ESG clearly are not in their long-term interests? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, just to set a little context for it, I think there's often like this straw man view of companies that what they do to pursue profitability is they only look at like economics. They only look at finance and they don't think about the broader picture, but the broader picture of how a company operates, like business leaders have always known that every element of their company and every kind of action or market condition can uh, affect them. And so there's many kinds of, you can call them impacts that a company has or that, uh, that they face that they take into account and they want to think about. And then investors take into account and want to think about if they're trying to figure out, is this company creating long-term value or is this company in a path that long-term is going to harm them? And so, you know, there's, as you mentioned, there's certain common sense things that companies are being asked to disclose and companies are often eager to talk about. You know, if you're, if you're an energy company, it's relevant to how you're performing in the long run. For example, you know, how much water are you spilling? How much oil are you spilling? How much water are you using? What kinds of, you know, pollution uh, are you, does your product create or do your operations create and what are you doing to rein that in? And but what companies are being asked to disclose or um, give like you know certain set certain targets for are really conditioned by this assumption that you talked about in an earlier segment that we are in an energy transition that we're moving away f- from fossil fuels towards renewables and so a lot of the inquiries are set from this question of how are you co- how are you planning to cope. And how will your company be able to cope with this coming energy transition? And so just as one example to start off on that, the the question will be put to companies, we want to see uh, how your company will perform in a case where we follow the Paris Accords and take the policy actions and achieve the technological and competitive uh, transformations that will allow the globe to keep temperatures from rising above two degrees Celsius. And this this is called two degree scenario analysis. And in effect, what companies are being asked is, if we go through an energy transition, won't your company be destroyed? And indeed, the people who really conceived and initially started pushing these requests were people whose explicit goal, these were shareholder activists um, whose explicit goal was to convey to investors and to the public that comp- that fossil fuel companies were overvalued because they weren't going to be able to survive as we rapidly got off of fossil fuels. And the these, we, I don't know how much detail you want to go into them, but I'll say just at a high level, um, that is a very dubious starting premise uh, in which to be able to communicate your long-term prospects because it essentially says, you know, what what will happen to your company if your industry tanks? And, you know, the larger question is, is your industry set for long-term value creation or not, it, rather than just these two-degree scenario analyses, which are assuming that your industry is set to tank? So I, I think that's one example, but it's one major example. And we can definitely talk about others if you're interested. 
Yeah, I think that's good for now. We might bring up a couple others as as we go through this. So you 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 talked about this best practice of two degree scenario analysis, and let let me add just one other kind of best practice, which is a, a real best practice that companies are getting lauded for, which is commitment to dramatically reduce greenhouse gas emissions. I mentioned the refinery case of that, but in the even in the exploration and production, you have companies such as BP and Shell saying, yeah, we're going to dramatically reduce our emissions, sometimes even saying we're going to get to zero. And even the zero not just the production of our product, but the use of our product, which is where most of the emissions come in, it doesn't come in from producing the oil. A little bit is from that, but it's mostly from using the oil. And those get lauded. So it's considered the more the the more that you concede the extinction narrative, the more ESG friendly you are considered, and the more you commit to the extinction of the fossil fuel industry, the more ESG friendly you are. And so this points to then the answer to my question of what does ESG or what does sustainability really mean? How is it really defined in the end? And it's really defined as non-fossil fuel. So ultimately, sustainability, sustainable energy in today's discussion, that means non-fossil fuel energy. And that is something where people are trying to get around that uh, they're trying to think, yeah, no, we can be a sustainable company and we can also be a fossil fuel company. And it depends what you mean. You can be a sustainable company in the sense of actual long-term value creation, but not as conceived of by the mainstream ESG movement. By that movement, by the leading definition or implied definition, fossil fuels are not considered sustainable. And as, as you mentioned, if we look at the history of the movement, it is largely a, the growth of this movement is largely a deliberate strategy to do two things. One is to stop investment in fossil fuels, and then two is to manipulate fossil fuels into getting off fossil fuels. So by promoting these anti-fossil fuel conceptions of ESG and sustainability, they they push investors away from fossil fuels and then other investors who either have to remain invested because they have to own a certain amount of the market or they choose to remain invested, those investors are manage, in effect managing, pressuring, manipulating the companies to go off fossil fuels. So if you think of this as, I'm calling this the ESG chess game because I think most people who are playing in it, most executives and boards of directors are not fully familiar with the history and goals of this movement. And it's really important to know that this is largely a strategy of the anti-fossil fuel movement to destroy the fossil fuel industry. And so the, the actions that they are taking are conceived of as chess moves on the way to get there. And so that doesn't tell you exactly what to do in response to those chess moves. But you need to understand the game that they're playing and the and the moves that they're making in the context of their uh, of their goal. And part of part of the the cleverness of the chess game is that many of the moves they ask you to do seem reasonable. But you still need to understand the game that they're playing so you can decide how do I do the reasonable things without doing the unreasonable things. Can and I say part, something about that, Alex? Uh, yeah, of course. Yeah, just to lay out that, because it connects to what I was laying out about the two degree scenario analysis. So the way that it typically works, right, is, you know, okay, we'll, we'll share with the public how our company is going to operate on this, in this sort of scenario. But that becomes a foundation then 
to start saying, well, are you really doing enough to plan for this transition? And so what happens is the next shareholder resolution or the next pressure from shareholders will come and say, well, now we want you to set greenhouse gas targets. And so the company, as you pointed out, might say, you know what, there's actually some economic things we can do to lower our greenhouse gas emissions. And so they'll do that. And they'll say, they'll say, look at our goals to lower greenhouse gases, and we've successfully done it. And they'll say, look, but this is not enough to reach the Paris targets, which you guys have already at least implicitly conceded we should be pursuing. And so then those targets need to be increased. And then if you're not keeping up with them, then there's going to be more shareholder resolutions that say, look, you need to tie, uh, your executive compensation to those greenhouse gas and other ESG targets. And then to make sure that that's taken even more seriously, you know, we need to hold the board members accountable. So we need to have board members here who take ESG seriously, who take climate seriously, which really means who who view fossil fuels as an industry that should be out of business. So there's an escalation and continuing moving of the goalposts. And the more that you concede and comply, the more vulnerable you are when they when they demand you need to be consistent with what you've already said is your goal, which is to lower your impact on the planet. Great points. I want to share a note I got from an executive uh, of a private company, but familiar with a bunch of this. And I thought it was just he 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 read my uh, our our white paper of the what's it called the um the ESG dilemma and what we call the the full impact messaging solution which we'll talk in a minute about what that means full impact messaging but here's just a couple of I edited this uh, a little bit I'm not going to say who it is but I thought it was really insightful and it it motivated me to create this segment So he said, there are consultants springing up to help craft a message on ESG. From what I have seen, those messages kind of fit the popular narrative, that is the extinction or transition narrative, but they lack a long-term strategy or well-thought-out framework. Simplicity, they seem to tacitly admit some sort of guilt and that the industry must be dismantled and that the future is unquestioned and clear regarding the replacement technologies. I think the consultants often believe this. That's a crucial one. I believe it all rests on the assumption that if we play along, we will be liked again, that as investors will like the industry again, and viewed as part of the solution with the group of people driving this. I think that is just not a path truly available to these companies with that group of people, as in the leaders of the ESG movement. And then he says later on regarding public boards of directors, this is a chess game that they need to think through many moves ahead. And that's really the biggest theme of this segment. This this is a chess game that you need to think through many moves ahead. And I, I just enjoyed this email where it just made a lot of good points, including that there's just the assumption that the industry must be dismantled, that the technologies to replace it exist, that the consultants involved saying to companies, oh, I'll, I'll help you with uh, ESG, they they believe this. Now, I, I should say full disclosure, we do consulting on ESG as well, although a very different approach. So you, you can call us biased if we disagree with, in a sense, our competition, but we're not at all a full, we do very kind of, a, I think, important, but narrow in terms of helping with certain kinds of messaging and, and in particular, helping with the strategy 
of it and understanding the chess game. So it's not like our goal is to become you know, the dominant ESG firm. But nevertheless, we do have some, I just wanted to disclose any competitive bias I had, but this was his comment. The consultants often believe this. I believe it all rests on the assumption that if we if we play along, we will be liked again and viewed as part of the solution with the group of people driving this. Yeah, I think it's that viewed as part of the solution. People think, yeah, we can be part of ESG. We can be responsible. And it depends. You can be actually responsible by your own definition and by the definition of many investors, but the mainstream definition of it or implied definition as responsible equals non-fossil fuel, you cannot agree to that if you want to stay into in existence as a fossil fuel producing company. So Don talked about one of the one of the big moves that the ESG movement wants the companies to make is to endorse this transition or extinction narrative. And I want to point out how that's exactly the opposite of what the strategy needs to be. If you think about your investor messaging strategy, so I think of it, there's an investor messaging strategy, and then part of that is the ESG messaging strategy, and you need to think about how those integrate. So you know, the value of your company, if you think about what justifies investment, it depends on, I mentioned this earlier, the market, how much of a market will there be for oil and gas, and then how good are you at producing it? So if you concede that there's going to be a dramatically smaller market for oil and gas, then you're almost certainly not a good investment. And you're certainly a much worse investment than you would be if there was a better market. So it's a very dangerous thing investor-wise to concede that it's going to be a much smaller market. And it's, I don't believe it's a justified concession. So when co- now companies are trying to, they're trying to agree with the ESG terms and say, oh yeah, we agree with the two degree scenario, or this is a likely possibility, but we'll be fine. So you, what's, you, it's almost humorous where you see all these companies have these sustainability reports and they all say, yeah, even under a two degree scenario, we'd be totally fine. But two degree scenario means like really near elimination of fossil fuels. And so just the idea that all these companies are going to be totally fine, we're even seeing with contraction of demand, even on today's scale, what's ha- but not not from economics directly, but with coronavirus, you're even seeing these companies be in jeopardy. So imagine what it would mean for most companies if we weren't allowed to use uh, fossil fuels for the, the vast majority of instances in which we use them today. So this this the the narrative about the future of your industry, that is a key thing that the investor messaging strategy must control. And the the way to do it the way to do it proactively is to say, look, we are committed to long-term value creation and we believe that hydrocarbons, fossil fuels, oil and gas, that those are going to be a crucial value and even expanding value to billions of people for decades to come. And then there are a whole bunch of points to make in terms of how to make that narrative, how to address all these different things like uh, renewables and EVs and claims of climate catastrophe, but that's that's part of the job, is to have is to be able to have really locked in all the specifics of your narrative, and then have all the answers to the opposite narrative. But that's not compatible with in your ESG having the expansion. You can't have the expansion, long-term value creation narrative in your investor messaging overall if your ESG messaging concedes the extinction. Uh, narrative, nor can you have the right investor messaging 
or the right strategy if you're con- if you're committing to reducing greenhouse gases as a first step. You could say we reduce it as we're we're doing something else like I don't know, we have more natural gas because that's a good strategy for us. But if you're saying we're committing to reducing greenhouse gases, that is a very dangerous path to um to be on. So I would I would really think of it as you know, anyone thinking about this, but particularly if you're involved in these issues, certainly if you're at the board level or the CEO level, be really aware of what concessions are you making and what commitments are you making or being asked to make and how do those affect your investor messaging and its prospects, including ultimately investment, and then how does that affect your long-term actual value creation? Because you can't if you're conceding the extinction narrative, you can't do investor messaging properly. And if you commit, if you start committing to real cuts in emissions that are inherent in your product, that is not consistent with long-term value creation, at least not with hydrocarbons. So those are the kinds of things to be really aware of. And I would just, the high-level idea is this is a chess game and are you are you really prepared for the chess game? And th- Number one is you need to understand what is the what is the opposition's goal, what is their strategy, and then how are how are the moves they're forcing you to make or trying to get you to make uh, part of that strategy. And I should say that in terms, of, if you want to know more about how we address, so there's the investor messaging overall, which is really important, and then we have this mini white paper on the ESG part of it in particular. But it has to go into the overall narrative of long-term value creation. You can email me alex at alexepstein.com. Just put white paper in it again if you're if you're actually dealing with these issues in some industry, and then I'll be happy to send that to you. And you'll see that one of the things we talk about in the white paper with regard to ESG. And 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 doing that in a making that a more legitimate thing is we do what's called full impact messaging. So e, traditional ESG is tending to ask for just negative impacts of what you do and have you say, oh, we're doing less of them than we used to. And we're saying, no, if you're really talking about your impacts in these areas, you need to talk about positive impacts as well, including the value you're creating uh, for the world. And in a recent example I saw of a way that I, I disagree doing it, what I call negative impact messaging, where you're ju- all you're doing is looking at negative impacts and you're basically saying, we're doing a little, we're less bad than we used to be or we'll do better in the future, but not anything really positive, is one of the, the best and most innovative and most admirable, in my understanding, companies in the world or oil companies in the world. But even companies overall called EOG Resources, where I've I've met different um, generations of the leadership there and have tremendous admiration for all of them, including the current ones. But if you look at if you look at their sustainability report, it's pure what we call negative impact messaging. It is every there's not one sentence in that about the value that they create in the world. It's all about there's some stuff about charitable stuff that has nothing specific to do with oil or gas, but it's all about hey, we're going to use less water and we're going to have less emissions, but it's it's all basically our, it implies, hey, our basic business is unsustainable. Like we agree with that and we're going to jump through all these hoops and, but we're being less unsustainable as we used to. And then you can imagine, well, investors or the activists will just say, well, it's not enough to be less sustain, less unsustainable. You need to actually move into sustainability. So what are you doing to get involved with solar and what are you doing to actually get off this stuff and so even 
yeah, if, if, so that, that's just an example of that's a really smart, admirable company, but in my, you know, you can take my opinion for what it's worth, but I don't think that they are, and I don't think most companies are really understanding the, the chess game that they're in. And I think if you do understand the chess game, it's not that you can 100% make it easy for yourself, but what you can do, which we talk about in the white paper, is you can comply with the most legitimate parts of ESG and improve your scores in that way, but you can avoid the most damaging things. And at the same time, you can create much, much better investor messaging that actually brings investors toward you. So that's that's what we advocate in terms of the strategy and the execution. I hope that's helpful. And I hope it's helpful to other listeners who are outside the industry for you to just see this is a this is a really important movement because it's what it's doing is it's the financial world, which is that's that's kind of the industry that fuels every industry. And then the energy industry is the industry that powers every other industry. And so what we really do not want is a finance industry that's taking capital away from the productive forms of energy and putting it toward the unproductive forms of energy, because that means that energy is going to be higher cost. And when energy is higher cost, then everything is higher cost. So this is really a humanitarian issue globally. And in future segments, we'll be talking about how to fight back against it as citizens. But today, I wanted to focus on how companies can fight back against it. And I know that some people listening to this will be, particularly if you're exploration and production, not so much if you're pipelines or certainly not if you're refiners, but you're going to be focusing on the oil crash. And there's lots of you know difficult choices to make. But this idea of your overall investor messaging, that's still a really crucial thing to be thinking about because it's the it's the extinction narrative that is contributing it's not the sole cause by any means but it's contributing to all of these problems in your industry in terms of investment and then also just uh, it's contributing to all kinds of bad policies including to the popular or semi-popular policies of people who say oh well let's go 100% renewable that's all based on the extinction narrative so that's all I had. Don, did you have any final thoughts you wanted to add before we wrap up? Well, I just want to reinforce something from a slightly different perspective, which is, you know, one of the justifications given for ESG is the idea that we want to make sure investors are informed. And certainly to the to the executives in the industry that I've spoken to, they really care about being honest and informing their investors. And I think part of the theme of what we're laying out is that you know, ESG as it's currently constituted is misinforming investors. And so if you comply with it by just highlighting your negative impacts, you're doing your genuine investors a disservice as well as your company. And so I think it's it, it like it really is a moral obligation to your company and your employees and your investors to really think about how to give them the full picture of all your impacts. Because, you know, ESG was not created by people who sat around scientifically investigating what are the best long-term value creation strategies. Like it was people who sat around and thought about how do we minimize the impact of companies on the planet? And that included some things that are actually good for companies and some things that are very bad for companies and all of their customers. So I think it's it's up to it's up to companies to think firsthandedly about how can we really communicate the value of what we do, both the positives and the negatives, so that our investors come away with a clear and accurate picture? Awesome. 
thanks uh, for joining me today. And thanks, everyone, for listening today. I'm definitely curious to see what you think about the first episode. So if you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, you can email me at alex at alexepstein.com. Want all kinds of comments, positive and negative, and certainly suggestions for any kinds of shows in the future. Um, Also, if you are ever interested in bringing in a speaker or in getting some kind of advice or consulting or message creation uh, from us, we like to help organizations with that. You can just email Don at don at industrialprogress.net. You're welcome to include me as well. And he can tell you about all the different ways we can empower your organization. That is it for this week. I'll be back, I expect, next week. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Until next week, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.